clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. We all have our favorite musical artists, but what do we really know about how they got there and what their business really is? Nothing. We know nothing. Sure, it's one thing to record a smash album. It's another thing entirely to be able to actually pay the bills. Joining us today to talk about her particularly interesting career and the business ramifications of that career arc is Jennifer Knapp. Jennifer is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, author, speaker, and advocate. Her first album, 1998's Kansas, went gold and is still a fan favorite. She's toured the globe and nurtured and inspired some of the most popular names in music today. Jennifer, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here, Ted. So let's every every superhero has an origin story. <laughs> what is yours? How did you decide that being a professional musician was the thing that you were going to do? <laughs> you know, I, I never really know how to answer that question. And the longer that I've been doing this, I'll say I probably didn't really decide or have confidence in that decision until about 15 years into it. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of got into the whole thing by accident. I mean, I in, in college, I was a musician. Um, I had you know, I, I think there's that connective tissue to what I do now. Um, I was a trumpet player. I did some singing and stuff in, in high school choirs and uh, to kind of pay my scholarship bills through school. But basically, yeah, I was a, a musician that uh, I planned on being a music educator somewhere in there. Um, but about kind of early on in my in the in my college years, maybe my freshman or uh, sophomore year of of college, I started picking up the guitar, started playing it and doing some songwritings and my songwriting and my friends were like, hey, you're pretty good at that. Um, and kind of one thing led to another, but I didn't really have an aspirational career. I didn't think about it. I didn't plan for it. I didn't know anything about being, you know, a professional musician, didn't have any delusions of grandeur and being a rock star. Um, but the simplest thing is people just kept asking me to play. And I kept saying yes and kept saying yes, loved it. And eventually, and I think this is, you know, in context of the program today, it it became something that, that seemed possible for a career and lucrative and enough. And so I just kind of kept following and I'm still saying yes today. So the, the switch from trumpet to guitar then was fortuitous <laughs> because there are shockingly few singer-songwriters who play play trumpet and sing. I got to tell you, I, while I'm, I loved my career as a brass performer, I can't tell you how great it is to be a musician and not have to use my face like that. <laughs> it was such a pleasure to like go, I don't have to play this thing anymore. <laughs> so, so on the one hand, um, you, you'll never need braces, but on the other hand, it's a, it's a very different way of life. It, it is, you know, and the, the the ironic thing for me at the time when I was in college is, you know, I was kind of like on the more on the classical side of things. So, you know, not where I live in a world now where music theory is relevant or, you know, kind of those skill sets that I learned in college. Um, when I started to do pop music at, 
out of the classical world, so to speak, and kind of moving into the genre of three chords, you know, <laughs> and singing as loud as you could and being as sexy as possible. Those things were kind of more important than your actual talent. <laughs> um, when I started to move to that, I felt like a lot of people kind of looked out, down their nose at me for a little while, like I was kind of betraying the true craft. But um, it was it was fun to really take the passion and have you know, one of the things that I had the disconnect in classical music is it didn't always have the space for just passion. It was skill driven. You know, I felt like a lot of times the conversations were skill driven and technique driven. And I didn't always feel like there is room for the, the space to kind of connect to audiences in the way that I ended up loving in this form of the, the music, in this form of music. Yeah. So, so how did your, I'll call it commercially viable. How did your commercially viable career in music start? Yeah. Well, you know, I think when you're talking about music and making a living, the first thing that people say is don't quit your day job, right? Like the, and the, and the, I guess the idiom, is that the right word of the starving musician? Uh, there it's, you know, I will tell you even today and after doing this for 20 years, it's not the first business I would encourage anybody to get into the line of work with. It's incredibly volatile, but you know, what happened when I was in school and, and, and eventually my music career took off to the degree that it actually required me to make a decision between finishing my college education or taking this path. And I wouldn't say that it was lucrative at the time, but I was starting to get people asking me to come and play shows. And I will go, well, if you want me to drive four hours to come see this, I really need you to pay, my, pay for my gas. Um, and at that time, I'll say that I was involved with, a, 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 I got my career in the Christian music industry. So it was in, in a kind of a tight knit community of churches and a lot of kind of, there were a lot of underground kind of coffee house scenes at the time. So a lot of college musicians were playing out and doing that kind of stuff. And so you'd get ticketed door deals. And what I was finding is I'd, you know, I'd set out with a $50 guarantee and I was coming home with, you know, three or $400 in my pocket. And that may not seem like a lot of money, but it was enough for me to pay my rent and pay for my food and even pay for some of the semesters in books and things like that. So, you know, I was making more money doing that than my hourly job rates at, you know, at fast food restaurants. So that's when I started to kind of look at that as something serious that I could do. And I was actually starting to get competitive with how much time I was spending in school and how many job offers I had. So, um, you know, I think that was just kind of the, one of the, the natural ways that I had to figure out how to make a decision is like, here's an opportunity to have work. It was viable work at the time. I didn't necessarily look at it as something that was long term, but for, for that time and for that season, it, it definitely paid my bills. And I went from a place from really, you know, stealing my own, uh, stealing milk and butter from my roommates and not ever paying the back for it, you know, to being able to pay my rent on time and my car payments and, you know, eat. And so for me, that was really, really <laughs> impressive. So you mentioned that this all happened in the, the Christian contemporary music genre. Um, yeah. How so? How did this happen? Was it church gigs, uh, and then and then word of mouth within that community that that increased the demand to the point where you were just going from 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 CCM gig to CCM gig? Yeah, I, yeah, that was definitely part of it. I, I think the other factor that was that was prevalent during the the early not early nineties or throughout the decade of the nineties, which was when I got my start, is that college. 
college students are really great audiences to play in front of um, because college students go, you know, aren't necessarily, you can go play a gig at a college, but the kids that are from there aren't necessarily from there. They're from another city. So they go back home to their cities. And for those students who are really engaged inside of their communities or really love music or at their local club, they go, well, I'm from Colorado Springs. You should come to Colorado Springs. So you, you know, you maybe met them in Kansas City and now all of a sudden you're going to Colorado Springs and it snowballs from there because somebody who's from Colorado Springs is from LA. And so you go, you know, you keep bouncing from that. So yes, I was inside of a a community that had its, had its, um, you know, was really happy to celebrate and network its artists that were working inside of that community. But also the fact that, you know, those people go to other places and talk about that. So, you know, nowadays we'd probably rely on social media in that sense, right? And we'd think of it in that context. But prior to social media and prior to the internet, it was people out on the road saying, I really like you. Come hang out where we're hanging out. And so you just keep saying yes to those kinds of things. Right. And, and trying and to not take those for granted. I, and I, I think early on I was, I was pretty lucky because I don't know that I would have, I would have thought about that on alone myself to kind of turn that into something that was lasting. But I did have a, a friend of mine at the time who was a bassist in one of the bands that I was playing in. And he was going, no, you need to think about this. You need to think about being strategic about it. And you can actually make a living doing this. Let me get these bookings for you. And then, so, you know, you have the basis of things that you're already getting that are naturally and eb- you know, uh, naturally getting a gig in Denver, but you know, then now you start building off of that and you're saying, okay, well, I want, I want a lot other people and see, well, if I'm going to be in Denver maybe I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody in Colorado Springs and you try and get work. So it kind of just blooms from there, but it did take a, some cultivation at a certain point and not, I, you know, I don't want to just say it's, Hey, I got lucky and people kept asking me to play. I think that's part of it and showing that there's essentially in a business language, a market for you to go out and work and being prepared to go out into that market, but also being willing to cultivate that market and looking for further opportunities to see if you can expand in that. And I was really fortunate that not only, you know, did I have somebody along the the lines to say, this is possible for you to do that. There's some significant ways that you can do that. And, you know, then you have to have the courage, I think, a little bit to go and do it as well. So what was your first big break? If you can point to one thing that was the oh my oh my goodness it's it's finally happened. Yeah. Um, well, I'd I'd been working I'd been working for a, a year or so, and I'd I'd made um, I'd done some like local recordings and like some independent recordings that were going out and giving me some work. But I did start getting some recognition from record companies um, in the Nashville and with, from within the genre that I was working in. So um, I wasn't really. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to sign a rec- recording contract um, when I was, I was at that time. I was probably in my early twenties. I wasn't really. I was a little bit hesitant to do that. But as I talked to a couple of the record lab- labels, I think one of the things that made me realize that there was another level then that I could step up to is I got invited to go on tour with a national act. So they were, you know, as an it was an act at the time called uh, Big Tent Revival. They were with a record label uh, out of Memphis, but had taught, you know, were with the Ardent Records was the record company. So the, the record company was interested in me. So they, you know, wanted me to have some experience going out on the road. And that was that was a point where I actually had to decide. I had to decide whether or not I was going to miss significant amount of school that I couldn't even possibly think about being a student in that particular semester. So I had to decide whether I was going to be a college student or whether or not I was going to be a musician. And so I was like, well, 
how many times do you get a chance to be right. a rock star, you know? So I, I said yes. And my mom was, you know, I kind of flew it by my parents going, because even in my own sense, own sense, I'm like, this is really irresponsible. Like nobody ever, you know, nobody ever has a career in music that's lucrative. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is not the, the wise thing to do. But I took that risk and the, the strange and with the intention of going, oh, I'll come back that next semester when this whole thing blows over and, you know, nothing really happens or comes of it, but it'll be fun. And that was the moment I never went back to school. Like from that point on, I was busy. I was working. I just, and it, it took another, I think it, it wasn't until like, I think that was around like 90, 1996 when I kind of made, made that decision, 95, 96. Within two years, I had a record deal and, you know, and kind of the rest is history, so to speak. So I didn't have a break then until about 2002. Let's let's talk about the record deal. Um, you know, y- you and I have a very similar undergraduate collegiate background. We both went to music school. We we both looked to music education as a career, and neither of <laughs> neither of us finished in any reasonable amount of time. And we both went to do other things. Um, you far closer to what your training was than mine was. But yeah. one of the things that really sticks out for me uh, going to music school was there was one business of music class. And it was for jazz musicians. And it was like, here's how to maintain the gig life and make, you know, and talk to people at the union and get gigs and get paid. There's nothing in a formal music education about navigating a record deal. No. And I mean, it's out there. I mean, I remember when, when I, when I got my first record offer, like I said, I think that was around 90, not between 95, 96. And all of a sudden I had no business background at all. I'm look, I'm, you know, I'm neck deep in paperwork and legalese and trying to make sense of it. Now I'm aware that there's all these other machinations that I have to think about. Um, I'm, I'm, probably skipping ahead with some of the questions that I know that we had talked that talked about, but I mean, it's, you know, you're not only talking about a recording contract. I was a singer songwriter. So I'm talking about licensing and who owns my stuff when and how they get to use it or how much control I get to have over that. You're talking about managers and contracts with them. And you're talking about agencies like booking agencies and talent agencies, and not to mention your own merchandising and branding. Like I, I, you know, I was a 20 some year old kid, no business, acumen in any way whatsoever and then all of a sudden whether you real whether i realized it or not at the time yeah i'm i'm in the middle of a, a corporate enterprise that's building off of a product um of my person and my talent and my skills and i had no idea really in the beginning how to protect that how to to think forward with it um yeah, so there were things that the, there was no internet at the time, so you couldn't kind of Google and vlog your way through it and kind of look on other experiences in that way. I found that other artists were rather tight-lipped their own experiences and didn't necessarily kind of mentor other artists in the way that one might expect. Um, there were some books out, you know, if you're a reader and you want to get educated. I think there were some books I remember reading about the music industry Um, and I I found myself kind of jealous a little bit. I think the Berkeley school of music was one of the few schools that I was aware of in the world that kind of approached music with 
an idea that this industry existed and there's, you know, a, a relationship between business and art that needed to, that would be really useful for a lot of people wanting to get into it. But I had no access to that and I was already well on my way. So I had to learn on the fly on the, on the school of hard knocks and um, had to, you know, it took a few years for me to realize that what I was doing wasn't just art and creativity. It was a business and that was really sobering. We're talking with singer-songwriter Jennifer Knapp. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments right there on the Facebook. Jennifer, what is the CCM business model? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think in, in one sense, I, you're talking, you know, as an entertainer, I, I, I kind of would say, oh, I'm in the entertainment business, right? That's what I tell people in short but with my history inside of what I would call, if you've heard us say CCM, which stands for people inside of that community as the contemporary Christian music industry. So Christian music, basically, and all of the kind of pop American ephemera to evangelical Christianity is kind of running through that world. Um, I got into that not really knowing anything about it. I had no aspirations for being a Christian music artist, but I was writing music about my faith and my religious experience for better or for worse. And that ended up, you know, landing me in that genre. The thing that's that's different about that model, or at least um, specific to contemporary Christian music industry, is that it's it's not based on the style of music that you're doing. <laughs> so, you know, if you're a rap artist or an R&B or if you're a Beyonce or, you know, a Tracy Chapman, you're looking for, you know, there's probably not a, a big, I don't think there's a big industry-wide difference in how you kind of approach the, the business itself. But for contemporary Christian music, the genre really demand has a high demand on you being able to fit into the brand as the individual first. You have to be a Christian. Your music has to sound like it's Christian music. You have to meet the context of Christianity and your style and how you do that and your skill doesn't really matter as a musician. It matters first as whether or not you're kind of fulfilling the obligations to be able to to be the, the Christian person in the brand. So you're actually building off your, that Christian identity first in order to exist in that environment. If you can't build that identity, you can't build that brand and use the skills that you have or the music that you have to then uphold that brand, it all, it all, th it all crumbles and falls apart. You're, you're not going to last very long. They're ultimately, what I would say is that to survive in that, you need to have the brand that fits that genre. So your style doesn't really matter, and the kind of music that you're doing doesn't really matter as much. So, so as much as they are selling the music, what they are really selling is the musician. They're selling the artist as, as an image, and the music is is the message that the artist is delivering. Yeah, it, well, yeah. I, I, the pro I think the individual probably is more of the product than the music. Um, but at the same time, and man, I don't want to be dis. I don't. I, I'm always. I'm always nervous about being hypercritical of my experience with with contemporary Christian music. I think it's really low hanging fruit <laughs> to kind of make fun fun of the religious environment for being what it is. But the challenge of of as an artist, I would say, a, a writing about your faith outside of the contemporary Christian music industry, there are a whole host of artists who write about religious or, or spiritual experiences, right? What's the difference between, say, Dave Matthews' 
who did a, a, a wonderful song about the Virgin Mary and Jesus. And why did that seem different to me than hearing it from CCM? And why does it feel like propaganda when I'm on the other side of it? Mm-hmm. So the, the, things I, the thing I kind of explain about the genre that I've, I've said over the years is that Christian music is music that's made for Christians by Christians for the purpose of making and communicating to more Christians. So by definition, it's actually propaganda. It's self-serving. It's it's meant to you know cultivate in and among its own community. It doesn't have any. It it doesn't have any pressure to have to extend its hand to the rest of the world. And like for me, ultimately, that's my my greatest critique and my greatest disinterest in it. Um, as an artist and as a creator, I wanted to be able to talk to whoever and as you know, you know, I could, and however I could. And if in my religious experience, if that's what I choose to talk about, um, if in that religious experience I can't connect with somebody who's not even interested in it to begin with, I I, I don't, I don't kind of see the value of it. I want to talk to more people than just people who are like me. And I I think that's one of the challenges. It it makes that environment only serving itself. And, you know, if if you're happy to live in that ecosystem and and work only within the constraints of that ecosystem, that's, there are a lot of people who do it and love it. Um, Ultimately, it was just not really something that I was going to live long in. Right. But, but in a comparison, you know, if the, if we go back to Motown, which, you know, they, they, they own the songs, they wrote the songs. And if you were the performer, you performed the songs. And if you wanted to perform other people's songs, that was fine, but you didn't have to do it at Motown. But Motown had a business model. And that business model was get as many songs in as many ears as humanly possible. And if the Jackson five didn't come along, Barry Gordy would have found another Jackson five. Right. And, and, and I think in what you're saying is the comparison would be, yeah, we're going to find, but we're going to find the right Jackson five. It has to be the one Jackson five that thinks the things that, that we think, and we're only going to, we only care about selling those songs to this subset of people over here and everyone else. We don't, we're not even going to worry about. I don't think you can, you know, I, I think you would probably get record executives arguing with me in making that point. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in the corporate environment um, because at the end of the day, a lot of the I'm not sure that there are any, like all the major contemporary Christian labels right now are attached to parent companies that are mainstream parent companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So no one's going to turn down an opportunity to to expand their business model, but there's no pressure inside of that to, to get people to, to listen to that. I think they've given up on that. You know, the, the subset is a Christian audience and only Christian audiences will, want to do that. And so their goal is to maximize how much you can get those folks to, to do that. And it's, it's essentially recycling. I mean, I think some of my, I think I misjudged some of my success inside of that industry because I didn't have fans. I had people that had just purchased the music because they would purchase it four or five times or, you know, that they don't, cause if you're a Christian, if you're in a, for example, if you, if you're a conservative Christian family, right? One of the things that happens is that a conservative Christian parent wants their kid to only listen to Christian music. They don't want their kid to listen to anything that's on mainstream radio. It could corrupt their minds, you know. And so the options then become limited to a kid inside in that environment to only purchase these kinds of records. So if you don't really like it, 
you know, if you're a kid, one of the complaints I heard about a lot of kids growing up and that if they don't really like the music that's available, stiff bickies. I mean, you only get to listen to what's available and parents will buy that. Whether you like it or not, you'll get bought because the it's like being a big fish, basically in a small pond. The options are limited. These are the you know these are the choices of shoes that you get to wear. <laughs> but but if you're if you're looking to sell that, you're gonna you're gonna create a, a, a Rosetta Stone for those consumers. So if your kid comes home and wants to listen to Eminem, you you look at the list and you and you see exactly who they should yeah. they should listen to, and you go down to to Lifeway and you buy that recording. No, no, that's an, a fabulous point. Yeah, like one of the comparisons that I got to is time. Oh, your kid likes the Indigo Girls. Or your kid likes Melissa, Melissa Etheridge. Well, buy Jennifer Knapp. You know, <laughs> they so, have no idea. Yeah, and they, you know, you become in some sense you want to become the replaceable version of that and you know artistically inside that community it becomes really frustrating because it's just like are you being a copy of somebody that already exists out in the mainstream world and some people do that like i'm going to make a record that sounds like eminem because eminem's hot right now so that's what you do and you know for somebody like me who's you know writing music from I'm creating music from nothing and not trying to be somebody else, but trying to, you know, cultivate my own artistic sense of self. That was not a fun environment to be in. You know, I didn't want to be somebody else and I didn't want to have to spend my business time trying to be competitive in that market because I was trying to replace something out in the real world. I was trying to create something new and that's a different kind of endeavor to have to think about and what the consequences of that, of you know, what the consequences of survival <laughs> Right, you know, come out to me, and ultimately that led to the me leaving that system. I wasn't going to survive in that system if I had to be a replacement for something out in the secular world, or had to continue to model some example of Christianity that I wasn't willing to collaborate with. Well, this is interesting because what you're talking about, particularly in the context of a of self-limiting your market, if you're the record label. That is pretty serious ramifications for the artist economically, if, if not, if nothing else. Um, and we're going to have to take a break in the middle of this because this is going to be a long answer. But, <laughs> you know, how do the economics of a recording contract and a music career work for the artist? You know, is it is it like the Bruce Springsteen song where you get a you get a big advance and no one tells you that that advance is actually a loan from the record company and you're going to be paying that back? <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, and I think I think one of the things, too, is it it speaks to the fact that that industry is actually monopolized by those people who have been successful about it. Um, you, you see long term artists that have had massively long careers, what they do and what they it's sort of like the Coca-Cola of Christian music. There are artists that I would say are really successful and they don't change that recipe because they don't have to. They're. And we're we're gonna we're gonna jump in for one quick break. Yep. We are talking with singer songwriter Jennifer Knapp on the reality of the music business from the perspective of the singer songwriter. And you're listening to her song "Perfect Pardon" from the album "Love Comes Back Around," to which she has graciously granted us the rights to play. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BizDisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Stick around while we take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at BIZ Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hi. We're talking about the music industry from the inside with singer-songwriter Jennifer Knapp. Jennifer, before the break, you had just started an answer on the, the economics of the recording contract. How, <laughs> what, what, what is the artist looking like when they, when they get the big offer, they sign the, the, on the dotted line with absolutely no experience in contract law? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, you hopefully if you're wise, you get an attorney and you get if you're lucky, you get an attorney who's actually kind of covering your ass. <laughs> Can I say that on the air? Um, you just did. But, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so I, I think that one of the the only things that I could comprehend about the time were, you know, the I, I got a five a five record contract. Um, I tried to understand the basics about it um, and tried to do the best that I could to educate myself so I kind of knew what I was getting into. But I also had in the back of my mind that, you know, well, every contract can be broken, just how much you want to be penalized in the process for it. But what I knew is that, um, and what was kind of the scariest decision that I didn't really know how to make at the time was um, 
and I, contracts are a little bit different now. It's been a while since I've seen one with a major recording label. But essentially, what I did was I signed off about 20, at minimal 80% of everything and all the rights to anything that I would ever write. So everything that I wrote and everything that I was going to be put on, putting on a record essentially became the product and the ownership, you know, belonging to somebody else. So any idea that I had, as soon as it became organized and sellable, um, became the property of somebody else. And that was a really interesting <laughs> predicament to get into. You know, I couldn't necessarily record it or give it to somebody else. Those had to all be vetted through now a panel of a lot of other people. Um, and I didn't really have the choice necessarily to do some of the things that I wanted to do when I wanted to do them. Um, not that big of a deal, but you have to, you know, Basically, the recording contract in terms of financially speaking is like if you think about it, for every dollar that I made on a song that I rec just recorded, I would make 20 cents to, you know, 20% of whatever the record company made. Um, whatever their mechanical royalties, which uh, guarantee a minimal <laughs> percentage of what you make in the, in the, in comparison to who owns it. So I was not the publisher of my music. I was co-owner of the publisher of my music. So that, that percentage knocks down. So things like that, where you're basically getting a pretty minimal portion in, in exchange for record companies and the publishing side of that, your rep, my record company happened to be my publisher. They're essentially being the bank relying on all the capital to kind of get that that product into the marketplace and working and functioning the risk is all on them so to a certain perspective you know it's pretty understandable no risk no financial risk up front was on me i either succeeded or i didn't succeed and i made a back end if i did succeed it was you know the better the more i succeeded the better that back end was but the record company then becomes all, you know taking on all the financial risk for you to to do that so you know, back in the day, that was a pretty good way to do it. Um, but now I think, you know, you want to skip forward 20 years and then, you know, from the time that I was doing that, the, the tide of that has really changed. When we, when we can now crowdsource, so we can get capital from other people to get our product out in the marketplace, it's starting to put record companies in a position of going, and for me, I haven't signed a recording contract in over 10 years because I go, what do you have to offer me in exchange for this? Is, right. is this percentage, you know, and is this metric equitable? And it's no longer to equitable in those those fashions. So I don't get 80% of a return for, you know, the 20% I'm exchanging or something, you know, things like that. So there are, there are a lot of layers to this onion and they all have interesting ramifications. So the, the, the thing that you are, one of the things that you talked about publishing rights, you're, yeah. you're in a position where you have to share your publishing rights and, you know, Dolly Parton famously keeps her publishing rights. She has always viewed publishing rights as being the key to her own financial security, yeah. so much so that she she tells the story that Elvis was going to record I Will Always Love You, and the night before the recording session, the colonel comes to Dolly and says, you know, we get the publishing rights. And she, <laughs> said, and she said, no, I can't give away the publishing rights on, I, I, it, it's my own, it's my security, I need it. And he said, well, then we're not recording the song, and so she didn't, he didn't, but she kept the publishing rights. Yeah. And as it turned out, she did just fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, in, in an entertainment, there, there are basically four, like I, there's the macro look at what I do, right? Like this is my business and this is my career. But there are basically, uh, I 
four blocks of revenue stream and kind of which each in their own right are almost you have like for me has been helpful over the years to kind of look at them as almost four independent types of business. <laughs> so one of them is, you know, a recording contract with you're talking about putting out a product into the marketplace that's very specific, right? That recorded product. And then you're talking about the the PROs or the 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 publishing royalties as a singer songwriter. So what songs go on that record, who gets paid then? That's a you know, that's a different thing because that has to do with how your songs are licensed and a variety of different things that you can do independent of having, you know, an album in its traditional kind of 10 song format. And then the other thing you've got is um, uh, the touring component. So what you make from actually going out and being a live venue. So you're talking about, you know, ticket sales, attendance and things, things in that vein. And then you're also talking about the merchandising. So if you're ever in a brand, you're selling t-shirts, there you might be, you know, as I've done, I've been endorsing in books, I've been, you know, in podcasts, like kind of these residual or these miscellaneous categories of things that you wouldn't otherwise had if these other mechanism touring and the record and things like that weren't making their way. And you have to figure out how to manage those. But they're all kind of, they're not necessarily... You, yes, you can, you know, in some sense, fit them under your corporate umbrella, but they all kind of function in different ways. You have to figure out how to, you have to understand how each one of those works. And when you understand how each one of those works, you can sometimes figure out how to maximize your gain, you know, maximize um, how they work and how they're related to one another um, in order to keep your business afloat. For example, you know, like touring, I used to rely heavily on touring because in terms of record. What I would tell you, what I was told initially when I got into this business is like, don't ever count on getting any money as a recording artist. You're a songwriter, so you're going to make money off of your songwriting. And I'd be like, okay, so don't don't even really worry about what your recording contract is in terms of how many points you're going to make, because if you'll be lucky if your record ever, you know, reaches the black. I was fortunate. I did. That money's really nice, extra pocket money, basically. But the the second way that I made most of my money was through touring heavily. And so I got, you know, a lot of money by working really hard and staying on the road and figuring out how to manage the logistics of my touring. So you're talking about, you know, how do you, how, how much money do you pay people? How much money does it cost you to be on the road? And does that balance out, right? However money I put in my pocket was how much I could get a guarantee to do a show and how I could control my expenses to be able to do that and they're independent of all those other things that used to be lucrative for me for a long time touring was huge for me and then all of a sudden you know I wasn't touring in that marketing again now does that mean that I'm dead (laughs) and it didn't but you've got to figure out kind of you know there's a big skeletal structure to way to the way a a modern musician's economy works so you started to talk a bit about the impact of new media, of streaming and and other alternate distribution sources. So Stuart Davidson tweets a question, what do you think about the rise of streaming services versus traditional radio and physical media? Do you think this could be the route to freedom from major record labels and artistic freedom? Or is it a threat to the artist's ability to make a living without constant touring? Stuart, great question. Yeah, uh, I would say my, my response to that is yes on both sides. And no on both sides. Like there are opportunities on both sides of it, and it's a detriment at the same time. Um, 
on on one hand, and I don't think a lot of people really understand the economic gravity to what the internet has meant to musicians. And the, the, the quickest way I know how to say it is that most everyone that I know has experienced a 90% loss of their, their revenue. We are no longer capable of getting 90% of what we were used to be accustomed to making. So if, for example, I had said, I, I want to go out and put out a record, I put out a record now, and I got to tell you, in terms of a, a business decision, putting out a record is not something that you would budget for anymore. You, it's just not going to turn enough profit revenue over for an artist. You have about six to 10 weeks to cycle that record, and then you're done. So whatever you make in releasing that record, and Beyonce did this. If you look at Beyonce's uh, Lemonade record, they dropped it. And inside of that, inside of six to 10 weeks, they knew that they were going to get that that revenue from that record in that time frame. Everything else after that six to 10 weeks is all theft. It's all like your record's out there. It's available to everybody. It's essentially free. <laughs> so you're kind of waiting for the your diehard fans to thank you and pay you for that in that time window. And then your your music's just out there. That's not to say that there aren't ways to that you get paid for that, like Spotify and streaming services. Um, but radios don't play me as an independent artist anymore, so I don't get that royalty. They aren't tracked that way. Streaming services... Uh, as an example, I think uh, most of the time, if I get, it takes millions of play, millions of plays on a single song or a record for an artist to actually see any meaningful revenue. And when I talk about getting into meaning re meaningful revenue part, I'm saying for an average citizen to even think about paying their rent, period. It's just, it's so nominal that it takes something like 14 million plays to get up to around to $1,000 in a quarter. It's, it's outrageous. So, so it sounds like what the internet has done, aside from providing ample access for no money to, to music, which has an economic effect on the artist and the label, um, it's, it's also given the artist the ability to disintermediate the label from the relationship between the artist and their fans. Because you can do, you know, you can do an album now with a Mac and logic installed on it and some fairly inexpensive sound equipment. Absolutely. And then you can distribute it by putting it up on YouTube for free. Yeah. So, so yeah, my, what I would tell, what I would say is like the incentive for me to be in league with, with, uh, with record companies or basically like the manpower to be able, it's basically capital, you know, upfront capital and the ability to have access to professionals that know how to get you into being a national product right? It's kind of more like an, more of an advertising agency than it is in, in terms of a manufacturing kind of entity. Well, now you're in the same that we're the same way that we're talking about, like mechanically speaking, it's a lot more affordable. You can make a record now for under 10 grand, like anybody can. And it sounds great. And you'll not know the difference between, you know, doing them in, in multi-million dollar studios. And there, there's some argument to be made for that, but it's it's way more accessible than it used to be. The same goes with a national national branding. I mean, look at any YouTube star or Instagram star, you're kind of just working and grinding out, making a name for yourself as a celebrity. And that doesn't have to cost money in order to do that. You have to be able to be savvy and you have to kind of then now, uh, you know, what I would say now is like, post you know post 90s and like now full on internet is that we're the internet's not just 
the internet is not just a tool. And this goes back to the question. In some ways, the internet's absolutely devastated the economy of Christian or of of any uh, of those of us who are participating in the old school entertainment market. However, there's a new generation of artists that are succeeding without that old uh, without that old system. Mm-hmm. You don't need that old system in order to survive. And, uh, you know, I'm surviving today. I'm still doing it 20 years later. But I've had to learn what that means in terms of, you know, like I said, you you now have to figure out what the the season is for, for a product. What is, what is the product that you have to offer? How long is its shelf life? What does it do? What are your returns? And how do you manage those returns? And so you're making your business viable. Right. Those are not questions that most people think about when they get into art. They just go, I want to be a rock star. Well, and 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 one of the one of the big issues for record companies and artists pre iTunes, pre Spotify, was you know you need this number of songs that could be hits for an album, and the rest you know you can kind of fill. And as the economy moved from album oriented sales to now consumers being able to buy the one song that they like, it, it's entirely possible that an album that has one hit. Well, I mean, it's guaranteed that it's going to be a financial disaster unless it's a really big hit because you've got to cover the costs of doing the album and distributing the album. Now, every song has to be consumer worthy. You know, yeah, I think that's a cool thing. You know, I I think in in some ways it's a cool thing as an artist. Sometimes like I go, well, let's not kill the album yet. Like there's a narrative for me as a 10 song, you know, if I'm going to put a piece of songs together, but you're, you're absolutely right. Like it's, it's changing the dynamics of how artists create. And, you know, all I have to do now to be famous is to come up with one song. I don't have to worry about that. Now, if you're talking about a long career, if you're talking about a business model, you need more, (laughs) you know, if you want to open a shoe store, you need more than one, just, you're not going to open a shoe store and just sell one pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want that shoe stop to, shoe store to be open, you're going to you're going to have to find that you're going to you have to keep developing shoes like Nike, right? <laughs> you know, you have to keep developing shoes that keep you in that narrative. And you maybe even do some off brands inside your store. You might, you know, I may do some cover songs or whatever to keep people coming into my store. But you have to keep thinking about it in that those terms and that's to me the challenge of longevity. It's it's and it, it does affect the way that you approach that as a creative artist as well. Like, you know, like what are you creating? How much are you creating and when you're creating it, how are you getting out there? That medium has changed. It's not it's not the traditional vinyl anymore or the traditional 10 songs. It has right. to start with and I think it makes you have to up your game. You you do have to come up with solid songs more and more, I think, in order to keep people's attention. So when you were active in the Christian contemporary genre, you, you reached the pinnacle of, of of that field. You were leading arena you were you were you were leading arena tours, you were touring extensively, you were a well known brand name, you were looked up to by other people in the field, you mentored young people who were out on their first tours. You were a, a tour manager for, for some. And and some of your stuff was used that were that later got very famous people very discovered. You took a hiatus. You you, you I quit. Left, you quit. Um, and 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 in in true godfather like fashion, music pulled you back in. You, you, you came Just back. when I thought I was out. That's right. You, you took an eight-year hiatus and returned to recording, not in the CCM genre, 
in 2010. Yeah, from I so yeah, the like in terms of the timeline, I think I, I think my first record dropped in 1998. By 2002, I was pretty sick of it, pretty exhausted, had been on the road pretty much nonstop and recording albums. I did three records within that time. Was on the road for probably 300 plus days a year during that time and didn't have a life. hadn't had sex in 10 years. Like. <laughs> And, you know, was trying to live up to, you know, was starting to develop my own adult opinions. At that time, I was 27 years old. I was, you know, the head of a multi-million dollar businesses. You know, I had my, just like my own business and what that that was generating in terms of responsibilities, revenues and contracts. And then I'd also started a management company, which is, you know, and a booking agency that, you know, I'd kind of had assets in the entertainment arena, so to speak. And I just got to the point where I was just so exhausted by all of it living inside of a genre that really needed you to to kind of uphold and want to buy in fully to the Christian model that we were talking about, like where the the issue and the the context of Christianity was more important than any of the artistic issues or even the integrity of how you ran your business behind the scene is just all right. the way that it was branded. And I didn't really know if I wanted to be a part of that anymore. And I, I think even in context of what you were asking me earlier is like, I didn't, I knew that it was a business and I was learning a lot about the business. And by the time that I kind of fully comprehended that and realized that I was a product, my own person and my body and, and like the image of me as a woman, the image of me as, and my sexuality was becoming an issue, um, that all of those things were on the table as having to be shared in that space. And I really came to, I went to, I basically had a meltdown and said, I don't know that I want to share that anymore. I don't know that if I, as a human being, want to be a product for anyone or anything. And so I, I left, I walked away from it, which was insane. Uh, you know, my pulling that product off the shelves meant that a lot of people lost jobs. <laughs> I lost my job and I basically, yeah, I just disappeared for about eight years until I kind of reconciled that, yeah, this was a business. Yeah, this was something that I wanted to do. And I was willing to, to kind of work with that um, when I came back. Um, but I also didn't know what that was going to look like because when I came back, people were going to find out that I was gay and that I was going to have to, like, I had no idea what the, I thought I knew what the the entertainment industry was going to be like. I imagine it wasn't going to be that much different than when I'd left eight years prior. Um, but I was curious to see if I could still do it because I really loved doing it. And I'd, I'd made that decision that, you know, well, that kind of the same way when I started, it's like, I like doing this. I wonder if I'll be able to build a business out of this. We'll start from ground zero and do it again. So you you mentioned that one of the reasons why you left was the questions regarding your sexuality or, or issues related to your sexuality. And that what that really was, was there were in, the industry was questioning what that was. Yeah, well, at the time, there was no space for it. And today, that's still true. I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, like mainstream main evangelical Christianity is not going to endorse or uplift a gay person of faith. Like it, it's happening more and I, those, it's possible, but as of right now, there's no welcome invitation. And in fact, a lot of reticence to have an openly gay artist on a, on a Christian label. That's not going to happen. Right. Um, 
and there are boycotts and in, involved involved in that. So, you know, I knew that that wasn't. I knew that when I came back to work that I, I wasn't going to have that option as available to me at all. Um, what that looked like, I had no idea how the rest of the world worked. I mean, I I assumed that it wasn't as different. I mean, at the end of the day, like music is still kind of basically the same. The, you know, the economy of how it works isn't profoundly different outside of CCM, as I've turned, you know, I've, as I've since discovered. Um, I learned a lot of things there that were just as just as ap- applicable to the way that I'm doing business now. But it was, I, what I did know is that that one quality about me made it absolutely impossible for me to professionally connect and absolutely unequivoc- unequivocally any of my former business relationships were not going to be allowed because of that one thing, right? because of my sexual orientation. So I had to rebuild my entire business, yeah. And so I was going to ask uh, you, and and I, I guess if there's a succinct way of doing this, how did you set about reinventing your brand coming back outside of that genre and in, in more of a traditional Americana folk rock type of, of genre? Yeah, I, I, I think like to be kind of cold about it, I, I had to just kind of trust in my product a little bit. Um, you know, I, I just had to trust that that the music that I was creating in the most fundamental terms was a product that people liked. If people liked it, they'd listen to it, you know, and that's it's it's that simple. But I think, you know, if you if you're talking about sustainability in a, in a business, you can't be na- that naive about it. You still have to be able to to connect with other people and tell and and create a marketplace that makes people want to have you and listen to you. Right. Um, so, I mean, I knew that I could just make my music and I was willing to, for people to judge it on its, its own merits, but I also had to found myself in a thing that I wasn't prepared for because I didn't have main street record companies and I didn't have a team of qualified advertising people. I had to figure out the hard way to how to rebrand because I wasn't interested in doing Christian music anymore. And even to this day, people are really happy to put on a headline Christian music artist, Jennifer Knapp. And I'm like, well, I'm not a Christian music artist. I am no way connected to that. And that's not an accurate thing to do. So at the same time, I'm involved in a lot of faith-based advocacy for LGBTQ people. So hang on one second. Unfortunately, we are out of time. However, for those joining us on Facebook live, maybe we will keep this conversation going though. We are running out of airtime. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. (laughs) Jennifer Knapp is a multiple Dove award winning Grammy nominated singer, songwriter, author, and activist. Her website is jenniferknapp.com. Her Twitter is at Jennifer underscore Knapp, and we'll put links to Jennifer's social media, her Patreon page, and the website for Inside Out Faith Foundation on our website under today's episode notes. And Jennifer will be performing her monthly Second Thursdays show live this Thursday night. Tickets are $20, and she'll be doing the entirety of the Love Comes Back Around album and perhaps a selection of her other works. The link to purchase tickets for that show is at jenniferknapp.com. Join us next time as we continue this multi-part dive into the life of the working musician. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. 
Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.